Welcome back to another episode of the Traveling Entertainer Podcast. That song playing in the background is called No Turning Back, off G. Lovin' Special Sauce's fourth LP entitled Philadelphonic, which features the absolute drumming legend that is this week's guest, Jeff the Houseman Clemens. Anyone that listens to this podcast knows that I'm a huge fan of the band, but it was great to be able to ask Jeff some of the questions that have been on my mind. I first saw Jeff play live with the Special Sauce around 1993 at the Crocodile Cafe in Seattle, and since then, I've seen them live every chance I get all around the world. I've said it before and I'll say it again, if you haven't seen this trio live, then you are missing out. Their chemistry on stage is something else, although as everyone in the band will tell you, off the stage might be a little different. Regardless, Jeff has had an over 30 year career as a touring and recording artist. He's played on over 15 records from G. Levin Special Sauce, but he has worked with such blues artists as Little Milton, Robert Finley, and most recently has recorded with Dan Oberbach of the Black Keys. This is a great conversation where we discuss the origin of his nickname, the houseman, how he ended up playing the drums, his future with the Special Sauce, and of course, some great stories about his time touring the world. So, ladies and gentlemen, before we get into the interview, let's listen to a nice little clip of his live drum skills on a little song called Never Home. So, without further ado, here is that conversation with the powerhouse drummer that is Jeff the House Band Clemens. holding up today i do yeah so i have um this whole this podcast has really just kind of came out of a passion of since i've been in my 20s i've been traveling around the world and i've done like you know 48 different countries by now and uh along those travels i tend to follow all the musicians that i can and wherever i'm at i'm trying to jump into a concert so the whole goal was Let's talk to a lot of these bands that I know and get their perspective of traveling and touring the world. Truth be told, man, I was at your first show in Seattle 
at the Crocodile Cafe when you released your first record. Um, and since then, I've, I've easily seen you guys the most out of any artist that I've ever, ever, you know, really followed. So I've been to easily 50, 60 G11 special sock shows over the past 25 years. I know Jeez, that's a lot of shows. I <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I hope we didn't disappoint you. <laughs> no, no, never once. Never once, man. Never once. So, you know, I, I, I've talked to Jim. He's been on the podcast. I've talked to Garrett. He's been on the podcast. And so, you know, I'd like to save the, the best for last, if you will. But I feel like I'm completing the circle of, you know, talking to this band that I've, I've loved for years. How did you hold up with everything? I, I got I was sick. I got coronavirus. Oh, you did? Are you a long hauler? Yeah, I had, uh, no, I'm fine. I had uh, November 2020. I, we were sent home from a, we were on a tour. We, and around March 12th, they called it off, sent us home. So I sat, I sat at home March, the rest of March, April, May, June, July. I got a couple of studio calls. I live in Nashville. Mm-hmm. And uh, I sometimes get a call from Dan Auerbach from the Black Keys, who has a studio here, and he puts me on some cool shit to play on sometimes. So I did a session with Dan in July of 2020. I didn't do anything in August. Then in, nothing in September, nothing in October. Then in November, I had the opportunity to produce and play on a record for a gal, singer-songwriter gal that's a friend of, 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 of uh, friends with her mom. And she's a pretty good little singer songwriter, this gal, the daughter. So I, she had a budget and uh, we got her to Nashville and we got her some musicians and, uh, and, and everything. And she came into town from Arkansas, drove over with her mom and a couple of, and a guitar player and a few other people. And she didn't know it, but she was exposed. And the second day in the studio, she's like, I don't feel so good. So we, she's got a fever. We're going to take her in for a rapid test in the morning. And then she was confirmed positive for COVID. So, I called everybody that was on the session as well as the studio personnel. And then sure enough, within the next 36 hours, we all started, you know, dropping one by one, you know, oh, shit. Yeah. So that's... I had pretty, pretty serious flu symptoms, but uh, I didn't have anything that was going to send me to the emergency room or ICU. So I didn't have any rest. I wasn't having any breathing issues. I did not have a cough. I did not have a fever, but I had all the other flu like symptoms and the, and, and, and extreme symptoms of, of flu. You know, yeah, that so sounds headache, body ache, fatigue. That was about all the, the first week, and then the second week was like loss of taste, loss of smell, all that, loss of appetite. That was, you know, but I was fine after that. So, so let, let's turn this around to something more positive. Uh, you know, one of the questions that I had is, how did the name the houseman come about? I mean, you know, literally the term houseman is like a male servant who performs duties. Uh, so. How did you get the nickname, the houseman? Well, uh, when I when I was around eighteen or nineteen, I grew up out, I grew up in, uh, outside of Boston. I was born in Boston, Massachusetts, and I grew up outside of Boston. And uh, I played. I started getting interesting. I was playing. You know, like I started the first band I played in in the city, like not just in the suburbs, but like when in Boston, like answer an ad audition for a band in the city was like a sort of what we would call now an indie rock band this would have been 1983 84 i did that for a couple of years i played like well again for lack of a better term was like indie rock you know not punk rock it wasn't really punk rock anyway after that band i started getting interested i started getting interested in in blues 
and studying jazz and blues. And there's a very good blues scene in Boston. And when I was 18, 19, I started trying to sit in at the blues jams and, you know, and then I eventually got into one of these little, little blues combos that played, you know, we played Irish pubs and we played little bars and anywhere they would have us anywhere from, you know, New Hampshire, Portland, New Hampshire, Portland, Maine, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, Boston, down Rhode Island, New London, Connecticut. We would just play anywhere they would have us, you know, and I made my living playing blues gigs and maybe teaching a couple of drum lessons and driving a taxi cab or something or in between or delivering flowers for a flower shop or whatever I did, you know, but all the guys that I was coming across were these blues guys that all had blues nicknames, you know, like there was a bass player named Mudcat, Michael Mudcat Ward. Michael Ward was Mudcat and Ray Norcia was Sugar Ray Norcia, the great singer, harmonica player. These guys are still alive, still playing, still around. You know, they all have these names, you know, and I like the idea of a blues nickname. And there was a drummer that influenced me at the time named Neil Guvan from, the, from Sugar Ray and the Blue Tones. They were a Rhode Island blues band, East Coast blues band. And the guy that played in that band played all vintage drums. And I got a, I liked what he was doing. So I went out and bought some old like 1940s jazz drums, like really old drums and started playing them. And then I wanted to have a blues nickname too. So I nicknamed myself because I had a lot of these old jazz drum kits have a big bass drum. Like if you watch old big band videos or old, you know, any kind of music clip from the 1930s or 40s, the drum kits are really cool because they were still pretty primitive at the time, but they most of them had a very big kick drum, bass drum. And I thought, I don't know how I thought of it, but I thought a cool nickname would be Thunderhouse, Jeffrey Thunderhouse Clemens on the drums. <laughs> like it just, sounded good you know because i had a big bass drum and thunderhouse was a cool name for a drummer i thought you know and when <laughs> g love started coming around when g love started coming around boston he'd show up at my blues gigs or he you know i'd introduce him around or whatever and he'd hear people for short they would just call me house like i'd walk in and say hey, hey what's up house house i don't know some people might say what's up thunderhouse so when g love heard that he just started calling me house man hmm. for no particular reason. So that's the answer to your question. And I could have insisted that I was the house thunder house on the G love records, but G love called me the house man. So I just let him do that. Right. Well, was there ever a discussion house. about that though? Were you ever like, you know, on this record, I'd, I'd like to be called thunder house. It- I did actually on the fourth or fifth G love record, I politely asked them in the credits to credit me as Jeffrey Thunderhouse Clemens instead of house man. <laughs> and did they do that or did they not? I think they did. Okay. Uh, this is probably the most basic question of, of all that you'll probably get every single time anybody interviews you, because I always look at, um, you know, the drummers are always the crazy one. I've always thought it, it's got to be one of the hardest um, positions to play in the band. Uh, not to mention the fact that, You've got so much luggage you're carrying around from place to place. It, it just seems like anyone that really wants to be a drummer, they've got to kind of overcome that. I've got the biggest section on stage. And so at what particular point were you, were you playing other instruments before you were like, all right, I'm, I'm going to be a drummer? Or what led you to the drums? Well, it's a very easy answer. My father was obsessed with Buddy Rich, jazz, jazz great drummer Buddy Rich, who started it the 1940s 
as a teenager in New York City playing in Tommy Dorsey. Actually, he started out in vaudeville. He was a tap dancer when he was like three or four. His parents were traveling show performers in a vaudeville show and they'd you know, put, put some tap shoes on him and send him out on stage to dance around. And then he eventually graduated toward like a maybe a stand-up drum set because he was too too short to reach the pedals sitting down. So they would send him out on stage in front of a bass drum and a snare drum and he would start kind of rat-a-tat-tat. But yeah, he's still, anyway, Buddy Rich. My dad was obsessed with Buddy Rich. I have two older brothers. My oldest brother, Brad, was an excellent drummer when I was eight and he was 17 or 16 or 17. He had a band that rehearsed in our basement that was, that was playing. This, was, this would have been 1973, 74. And they were playing the popular FM song, you know, top 40 of the day, which might have been like, uh, you know, Jeremiah was a bullfrog and everybody was kung fu fighting and, uh, you know, uh, taking care of business by Backman Turner Overdrive. Maybe that one was a little later, but you get the idea, like song, uh, hit songs. And uh, they rehearsed in my house and I would go down there and, you know, sit off to the side or take a blanket downstairs and find a corner and watch them play. And, you know, they were pretty good. You know, they weren't like, you know, going to be superstars, but they could play. And uh, that was a lot of influence on me having a live band in my house. And then my dad's obsession with Buddy Rich, he'd drag us to see Buddy Rich play whenever he came to the area. He, Buddy Rich would play like auditoriums where they had proms. He would, he would play like, we saw him at Canton High School Auditorium, which is the next town over from where I grew up. He played like in the, in the high school auditorium. And then, you know, he'd play at the place where they have the senior prom and the place with you know high school auditoriums and as well as like clubs and other venues. And anytime he came around, my dad got tickets and took the family, you know, right. and, uh, that, that's sort of what all, it all sort of like seeped in. And then, but I didn't actually play the drums until I was a freshman in high school. Like I never actually sat down and played my sat down to play a kid till I was like 14. But as a kid, it was all fun. I was like a sponge. It was all soaking in. A little inception going on. Yeah. That's yeah. the answer to that. It sounds like from what I know, you know, you'd been on the Boston scene for a long time. Uh, you'd kind of worked your way through, like you'd mentioned, the blues uh, bands and, you know, hustling your way until you um, until you met Garrett. Right. And one of the things that I, I was listening to some other interviews that you'd given, and one of the things that I found interesting that I didn't know was that when you met Garrett, you were older than him. I think you guys are six or seven years apart. You're kind of like the, you know, the older, wiser one in the group when you started. But one of the things that I heard you say was that if you guys were going to start a band, the two of you, that you didn't want to do any of the work for posters, advertising. You just wanted to play and he had to go get that type of, he was the one that was going to do the hustle. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that's pretty correct. Um, the other thing I was doing right around that time when I met Garrett, aside from playing blues gigs and trying to start a band with him, I don't know if, if you know this or not, but I actually auditioned for uh, Mark Sandman's Morphe, who I'm a huge fan of. I'm friends with all the guys in that band, including the guys who were the drummers, but the guy who was their original drummer couldn't play for a while for some reason. And I was trying to get Mark Sandman to, I wanted to play. And they eventually settled on uh, Billy Conway, who's another great Boston drummer that Mark had played with uh, antecedent, antecedently earlier before. <laughs> um, and, 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 and uh, but yeah, uh, you know, when I met G Love, he's, yeah, he's, I think he's eight years younger than me, eight and a half years younger than me. And I, I, you know, I just said, look, you know, I'm kind of burnt out right now because I was doing this other band that tried to get a record deal that in between all those blues gigs, I had this other band that was trying to showcase down in New York for the record labels. And we were like sort of in the style of, 
Red Hot Chili Peppers. This would have been 19, uh, 1991, 92. The Peppers were starting to get popular, but they weren't the superstars at that time that they are now. They were sure. still a club act. Yeah, but they hadn't I released Blood Boston, Sugar Sex Magic because that thing like, you know, projected them into, you know, worldwide phenomenon, right? I think Mother's right. Milk got them pretty close to it, but it was really right. Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Yeah, I mean, I used to go see them play at 85, 86 when they would come to the Boston clubs or the Providence clubs, we'd drive around and we wouldn't miss them, you know, but I, w- I played in the band that was doing that. And when that all sort of busted up, right. I met Garrett right after that. And I just said, look, you know, if you want to put up the posters and hustle the gigs, I'll show up and play them. But yeah, I'm not, I'm not riding around putting up posters and booking the gigs and doing the legwork. You want to do it, do it. You want me to play, call me, I'll play. It was a little, you know, I had a little more involvement than that. It was my idea to have the upright bass. You know, it was, I was studying jazz at that time. So I was playing a lot of jazz with brushes and the, the concept of the band was my concept. I mean, Garrett was the front guy. He was like, he was, he was like our, he was like a beastie boy holding with the guitar. That was his part. My part was like, I knew how to play jazz and I knew how to play classic hip hop, but I wanted to do it with brushes and just play it in a real jazzy way, not with drumsticks and not real loud and bashy on the cymbals, but like more like uh, take a walk on the wild side. If you think about Lou Reed's take a walk on the wild side, which you can listen after this interview, you'll hear very clearly. That was my concept for the band was like funky beat with brushes, upright bass. And then G love on his little wooden uh, blues uh, guitar, which had that, thing in the middle of it like a hubcap that was a resonator guitar a blues resonator guitar we had a very woody earthy tone and it wasn't an electric band it was very very much super low and groovy um, that was the concept of the band that was my concept so when i saw garrett the first night i ever saw him in a bar i was like that's the kid he's got the components that i can i can that i need and i went right up to him and we chatted and i was like this is what we're going to do. I know a bunch of upright bass players because I was making the jazz scene, making the jam sessions and stuff. We had a bunch of guys come down and play with me and Garrett and a bunch of them didn't like it, but Jimmy Jazz liked it and we thought he was all right. And we had another guy too, right around me, two guys. The other guy just kind of flaked on us one time. So then we called Jim to come back <laughs> and play with us. And that was kind of the timing Man. on that. Do you ever look back at that, that period and, you know, like that, the story about with morphine, it seemed like, you know, you probably really wanted the gig, right? They, they turned out to be a really, uh, you know, important band at that yeah. time. But you look back yeah. at it now, and you're like, God, I, I, you, you might have got the best meal ticket out of there because, quite frankly, you guys have had an almost 30-year career that has just been, there are a few bands that have stuck around as long as you guys and have been able to pull off, I think, what you've accomplished in, in your career. So when you look back at those, those auditions that didn't go well, are you... Are you like, glad I didn't get that one? Um, for better or worse, you know, we stuck it out for about 27 years, almost 30 years. And very much like any relationship or marriage, it certainly had its ups and downs. I'm being very polite here. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, a lot of people might not know, but, uh, you know, the band Morphine was wildly popular in Europe in the, in, the, in the mid to late 90s. People loved them in Belgium and Holland and Germany and France and England and uh, other places too, United States, of course. But a lot of people might not know this, but the front, the guy who was the songwriter and singer and, you know, uh, conceptual, the guy that sort of built the whole thing was Mark Sandman. And he died in 1999. He suffered a a heart attack on stage at a festival in Italy. 
uh, he was 46. Uh, so, you know, was it, if uh, I recall, cause I remember reading about that at the time, but wasn't it also drug related? It wasn't just a heart attack. It was something like that. Um, I can tell you very matter of factly that Mark did not, was not a drug. So, it was just, it was just a tragedy. Well, he, you know, I don't want to say too much, but he liked tobacco and he liked, he smoked marijuana. He liked weed, but I don't think that's incriminating to say. Beyond that, I, I, I've spent enough time around Mark. Mark was an uh, unbelievably productive, extremely prolific and a very original and unbelievably laser focused music artist that everybody looked up to in, in Boston, including me. The guy could do no wrong. He was like, he walked on water on the Boston music scene and deservedly so. He created one of the coolest, most original sort of lo-fi rock bands that I can think of ever. Let me ask you this then. I think what you guys have accomplished, and look, I've, I'm maybe I'm a, a jaded lifer of a fan, but I feel like you guys have carved a niche that no other band has ever been able to duplicate or replicate. The sound is so unique. There's been, there isn't anybody that sounds like you guys. And I That's feel true. like, I, I feel like for whatever reason, that should be enough. I mean, look, I've, I've always thought you guys were the hardest working men in show business. You guys have toured your ass off. You know, you've been through so many different record contracts. You've been through band fights. You People have been fired and being rehired, you know, but I think at the core of it, for some reason, the trio, I think you all must know that you've done something that's going to last well beyond what you've, you know, what you've doing right now, right? I think 10, 15, 20 years from now, I, I think even right now, there's a younger generation that have starting to listen to G-11 Special Sauce and are, are, are um, interested in, in, do you see what I'm saying, Jeff? Yeah, I do. I, I, I'm trying to think about how I want to answer this. You know, the good news is that we were the coolest guys in the room at one time and nobody could touch us. The bad news is that we were the coolest guys in the room at one time and nobody could touch us. And we never really made it to the, you know, we, I don't know why we didn't, it seemed like everybody that came up around us, Dave Matthews, Jack Johnson, you know, John Mayer, did uh, Jason Moran, like anybody you could think of that sort of came up around us kind of went past us, sold more tickets and more records than we did. And we, we couldn't, we were almost to the getting over that ridge at around 2007 or eight. And, we just, I don't know what happened, but we just sort of started to, it started, it, we just couldn't get up over that top of that roller coaster and down. We started sliding back down. And since, since that time, you know, I noticed that we were playing to every year, we were playing to less and less people, like, you know, till it got to where every place we were selling a thousand tickets, we were selling 500 and every place we were selling 500, we were selling 250. And, you know, we were basically, it was going and, the, you know back backwards to, and uh, it was hard to watch because you know I think that you're right I think that G Love is a true original art music artist and you know people wouldn't come to see us play because they were you know we're going to be dazzled by you know electrifying mesmerizing solos and you know there wasn't going to be jugglers on hot on, on tight ropes and nobody was going to be you know doing uh tricks on a motorcycle with chainsaws you know it wasn't like that kind of a show it was like people that knew what what it was liked it for the that reason which was it was just kind of like a good funky time and 
pretty girls, you know, and maybe a cloud of pot smoke and whatever, whatever people or whatever people found attractive about a G loves the sound and the G love show. It was just like a happening. It was a thing. And uh, yeah, you know, I got to say, I think that, that Garrett is a, a really original music artist and Jimmy really nobody else except for maybe Chris Wood from Modesty Martin and Wood. Nobody else was really doing what Jim was doing on the bass. I don't know. We had a, we had a sort of aesthetic that we liked, you know, we, it's, it was a peculiar trio because we were all sort of connected by different forms of, of blues, jazz and blues, American music, you know, uh, you know, Garrett's palette was, you know, he liked Bob Dylan and Bob Marley and John Lee Hooker and, you know, Lightning Hopkins and those guys. And Jim was like, he was like our resident, you know, bebop guy. He liked John Coltrane, Thelonious Monk, you know, Miles Davis, jazz stuff. And then like, I fell, I, I collected a lot of those from, you know, I, I also liked what Garrett liked and Jim liked, but my, and then I brought like this sort of like James Brown meters and Led Zeppelin kind of thing too and smash it all together and like you know all the artists that i just named would sort of in a blender would kind of be uh, you know and sprinkle in the rap element so yeah maybe a little bit part one part beastie boy too you know and yeah it was an original band like like it's funny occasionally i see people try to cover g love songs or i see them on youtube covering g love songs and like and I don't have enough time to explain to you why it's never going to sound like us, but there's, there's a reason. And it's just the way that we play and the way that I play is a very specific thing. I'm not hiding anything. I have free drum lessons on YouTube and on Instagram. <laughs> like I explain what I'm doing. I'm not hiding anything, but like even now Garrett's playing a lot of gigs without the special sauce. He's just out of uh, financial necessity or and whatever, and like in general, he's covering a bunch of other gigs with a very good friend of ours, Chuck Treese on the mm -hmm. Chuck's a Philly friend of ours and good drummer. And like, I see clips of them playing on Instagram and I see Chuck playing some, my beats and like, he's a good drummer, but not playing my beats. You know, I, I remember uh, speaking of Chuck Treese, there was a period, you guys did a tour together where there's two drummers on stage. And I think yeah. Mark Boyce was in the band at the time. You know, yeah. so you, you did that one tour and I always wondered like, why two drummers, <laughs> you know, but. Okay. Did you ask Garrett this question? I did not. No. Well, so we were going to, we had some dates uh, opening for Dave Matthews and just, you know, maybe Garrett at that time thought that it might be a good idea to have like bigger sound and more firepower on, mm. on the big stage. It's playing, you know, you're playing. You're not playing to 400 people at Sweaty Maggetti's. You're playing to 15,000 people in, a, in an outdoor pavilion or arena. And like, I think Garrett just thought, well, maybe we should get an extra drummer and get the keyboard player and fill out the sound. And like, you know, I was, I was open to that. Like, I love Chuck. I learned a lot from Chuck. I think if you interviewed him, he would tell you that he learned some things from me. Like, I'll tell you one thing that I learned from Chuck was that, like Chuck, he, he hits harder than I do. I mean, every drummer's going to, every musician's, like anybody picks up a guitar, every single person's going to play in a different way, right? So like Chuck, I was having trouble getting more sound out of my cymbals. I didn't know, I, I guess I didn't know what he knew, but when I saw what he brought and how he played his cymbals, 
it was really obvious what I was missing. And I'll tell you what that is. So Chuck, at that time, I don't know about now, but at that time, he was playing sort of bigger sized cymbals that were really thin. You know, you couldn't like bend it completely in half like a like a like a like an aluminum pie tin, but like he was playing these bigger cymbals that were really thin and jazzy. So you could ride them, but you could also crash them. When he would ride one of those cymbals, it would wobble and warble and create this oscillation, this sound, much like a, like a it just like the the sound it was we uh, he would the sound would swell like when I would hit my symbol when I would play my ride symbol it would be very defined ping 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 and when I crashed my crash symbol it would just be like a crash sound but Chuck had symbols that you could ride or crash that created this swell so the longer you the, like if you if you just hit it once it would just go like psh. but if you kept hitting it it would like it would sort of rumble up into this like furious wash and that's how he dominated me and that's how he dominated the sound on stage was with this wash and when i saw that the very next tour after he wasn't with us i called my cymbal guys and i'm like send me everything that sounds like that hmm. you know and i started getting um, and then I had a lot more confidence because I, I mentioned to you a few minutes ago that we started out, when we started out, we were like playing in the corner of the Irish pub. Garrett did not have an electric guitar. Jim was playing an upright bass through like a little tiny jazz brunch amplifier about as big as an iPod, iPad, like just a little tiny little amplifier they call the cube. And I was playing with brushes and we were just playing like jazzy hip hop. It was really low volume. You know, we G love sang through a microphone, but the rest of it was mostly acoustic. As the years passed, even before Chuck was in the band and all that with the two drummers, as we started to play to more people and we got people were getting more excited and the venues were getting bigger and we were playing at festivals in Europe, Garrett decided he needed an electric guitar and a bigger amp. That forced Jim to get a bigger bass amp. That forced me to get, I had to get bigger drums and bigger cymbals because it just got bigger and louder. That's just what it evolved to. I'll tell you on the record that I never signed up for that. And I never wanted to play in that. I never wanted G-11 Special Sauce to be that. They might have, Garrett might have wanted that. Jim might have wanted that. I never wanted us to be that electric funk rock band. I love all kinds of music from, you know, I love the Ramones. I love, you know, Andrew Bocelli. I like motorhead i like jazz i like de la soul i like i like all kinds of music but like i personally didn't ever want us to be a rock band playing electric sounds mm. and that's what it evolved into for oh the first few years we, we were pretty quiet and after that it just started to get bigger and louder and bigger and louder yeah and then we added extra musicians like extra drummers and mark Boyce on the keyboard which was cool like you know we tried a lot of different things and i was open to that and it was fine but if i had my choice we would still be the cool jazzy combo in the corner of the irish pub even if we were playing to you know eighty thousand people like glastonbury i still would want us to play cool and be the coolest cats and take that corner irish pub vibe to the big stage just i just think that it just evolved into something i couldn't control you know? Sure. Well, I mean, look, I, I, what I was thinking when you were saying this is, you know, you get the self-titled release that came out, huge hit. 
You guys are traveling all over the world. I want to I'll go back to that part a little bit later because this is supposed to be about traveling. <laughs> but uh, right, yeah, yeah. You so the, ask me any travel. Questions. Yeah, not yeah. one yet. We're gonna get there though. We're gonna go. We're gonna go eighteen hours. I'll ask you one question at the end about <laughs> traveling. But here's the point: is I, I I kind of assume you guys had one of the last bands to get these really classic, um, you know, late '80s five or seven record deals with OK Records and Sony Records. And you put out the self-titled album, you know, you really make a stamp on this is us, this is what we sound like, and you tore your ass off. And then uh, Coast to Coast Motel comes out, and you guys really went towards that, we're going to be that band in the corner playing the blues music. And it was, a you know, a step in a, a different direction than the first record, but then you compare Coast to Coast Motel to Yeah, It's That Easy, and it's like, their night and day record. The recording process is different. I think there's a ton of different musicians in it. Not everybody in the band was actually a participant, meaning you and um, Jim. But to be perfectly honest, that I think that is the sound. Yeah, it's that easy. Became the sound of G11 Special Sauce moving forward in a lot of the records, right? You know, I think that that, yeah, that so. kind of it, it defined it. And maybe that's one of those moments where a record label is looking at Coast to Coast Motel and saying, mm, "We can do something different next time, boys." Yeah, I think we should have, well, we sh the Coast to Coast record, I think we, that should have been, we should have, that, that one should have been a different direction than the first record. Uh, when I say direction, I just mean like, you know, we had a big opportunity to score hit record, you know, with the, with the big machine behind us. Sony is a big machine and they, they're very much like, uh, you know, they operate like a mafia. I'm not saying that they have underhanded, unscrupulous business practices. I'm just saying their machine is like they pick up, they make one call and then everybody does what, 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 you know, the word comes down from, from the dawn and then it goes, it travels around and, and that's the gospel. And I'm saying it travels to Zurich, Tokyo, Melbourne, you know, they pick up the phone in New York and they say, Hey, you know, these guys are, it's like it's like the mafia like these guys are coming make sure they're taken care of these guys are coming make sure they're on tv these guys are coming make sure that they have whatever and that was the power of sony i wasn't trying to imply that they're crooks and murder people i was just saying they operate like a like like a mafia like the big the big head honcho says this is a priority these guys are coming to your city make sure that it's happening and that's how it that's how we had you know, we owe a great, I personally owe a lot of gratitude to Sony Music, Epic Sony, because they gave us the opportunity and put, they put us on, on their, in, in the cycle on their machine. And, you know, that, 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 you know, that maybe we can get into a little bit of the travel stuff because of that, but like, we wouldn't have been able to play in Brussels and Paris and all up and down all those European places, Scandinavia, Japan, Australia, and, and, and you know gain any popularity if it wasn't for the sony machine you know sure well so that that kind of leads me to to one of the things that i ask almost every guest is it seems like i want to say you're in your mid-20s you get this record deal with sony and all of a sudden you're all over the world and can you talk a little bit about what it was like to be that age and and all of a sudden having this opportunity to see the world because i'm guessing um, you probably hadn't been to any of these places before, if not many of them. Uh, I personally did, actually. I, I, uh, in the 
mid eighties went to Israel and, and, tra- and backpacked around and worked on a kibbutz, which is like a farm. And then I've traveled, I backpacked through Europe and saw some of, some of that, but yeah, it was great to be able to go back on, on somebody else's dime and, and, and see travel around the world. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I had not been to Australia or Japan. Pretty exciting to show up in a place like Osaka or Toronto or Lawrence, Kansas, or any college town where the where people know the words to your songs, or they maybe in Japan they don't know them all the words in English, but they might know the chorus that they can sing along to. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. What was the question again? <laughs> <laughs> I was more like you know, even though it sounds like you did a little bit of traveling before, I, I'm just curious how far around the world did it take you when you first started? Did you, you know, here's, here's one of the things I know about you guys. There were several years where you guys were booking 200 to 200 and something shows a year, which is ridiculous, right? I don't it know many, ridiculous. It, it was ridiculous. And I'm sure there's a lot of burnout, you know, I'm, I think that might be one of the reasons why the band uh, had a lot of fights over the time. You're just spending too much time on the road together, but not many other bands were doing it like you guys. So, I mean, you guys, it seemed like one of the things I learned from Jim and Garrett uh, was that you made a decision at some particular point to stop taking touring money from Sony and you're investing your own money into it. And, and that was really the bread and butter. So maybe you guys just became a touring band um, because that's what you knew how to do. And that's where, where the money is. Record sales started to dry up for a lot of people, you know, in the late nineties mm-hmm. and early two thousands, but you guys had that fan base to allow you to, to do this. I, I don't know. I guess w- what I'm going at is you still, it seems to me, you guys have the ability to still hit Australia, still hit Japan. Uh, I don't think you've been to Europe very often. I know Garrett's been over here and done some solo stuff very briefly, but you laid the groundwork in the Sony years to be able to reap the benefits for the touring years. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. That, that in a sentence, that that's kind of what, what happened. Uh, yeah. It's a miracle. You know, when we toured in the mid nineties and, late 90s and early 2000s. This was before iPhones, you know, nobody had a a cell phone. There was no GPS in your pocket. You know, you couldn't text anybody. You know, we traveled around, you know, I don't know who booked our plane tickets. I don't know who booked our tours. I don't know who advanced all that stuff. We rode around in tour buses in Europe and flew on planes to Japan and then got on another plane and flew to Zurich and then got another plane and flew to Sydney and then came back to the States and ran around like maniacs and then got on another plane and flew somewhere else then played went to New York to play on David Letterman you know like I it's a miracle to me that I'm not dead because (laughs) if you you spend 200 days a year in a moving vessel a train a bullet train a, a tour bus a taxi cab an uber somebody picks you up at the hotel to take you to the festival. You don't know who's driving you or what's going to happen that day. I, you know, and I think about all the days of my life in the last 27 years that I've spent in motion, sleeping on a tour bus on the interstate going from Kansas City to St. Louis or getting on an airplane, so many airplanes to fly to Tampa yeah. or to Dallas or from Dallas to Nashville or from wherever, San Diego, you know, planes and planes and trains and automobiles and, and like like I said, I mean, all that stuff was advanced before anybody had an iPhone, an iPad, and computer technology. Like we toured in Europe before they had the Euro, which means that you would go to yeah. sleep in Germany and then you would wake up in Belgium 
and you'd be, you'd, you'd be like, where are we? What country are we in? I got the wrong money in my pocket. I, I don't know where I am. I, 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 you couldn't just get on your phone and look up the address of the hotel. You know, you had to like look at a real map and it was all in Europe, you know, it was in French or the street names are in Dutch. And you were just like, I don't know. And where's the bus park? Where's the hotel? And boy, I really have to poop. Maybe I'll just take a cab. Oh, wait a second. I have Deutschmarks in my pocket and I need Belgian francs. I have Belgian francs in my pocket and I need Swiss francs. Oh, where am I in Switzerland? No, I'm in the Netherlands. I don't have the right money in my pocket. I really want something to eat, but I can't buy anything. I guess you could with a credit card, but it was all very, uh, like I said, I, I don't know how we got anywhere and I don't know how I'm still here, man. <laughs> well, you know, I, I've had that same experience. I, I did a lot of backpacking in the 90s through Europe. And like, there's several times you go from one country to the other and just like, I've got five French, French francs and I need to convert them over to drachmas. And you're like, where do I even do that? But, you know, I, I think what's interesting is, is the fact that you're saying like, you know, there have been other bands that always have bus accidents, injuries, something happens on stage, but nothing really detrimental is happening to this crew that I know of beyond maybe a few arrests or being pulled over for, you know, whatnot on the tour bus. Um, but has there been anything that's happened to you physically during the course of all of this traveling around the world that has either prevented you from, you know, playing in the band or are you one of those guys that's just like, I'm going to huff through this two hours, even if I'm, you know, if I'm, I've got the flu and I'm dying. It's both because I, it's, it's, it's exactly what you said. So in other words, like everybody has had their challenges on the road. Maybe you have the flu. Maybe uh, I've had some you know, tendonitis in my elbow from, you know, just from trying to play night after night, or you might have something going on in your personal life, a family member who's you know, terminally ill or whatever the story is. And you have all of those challenges to deal with. You know, you're just trying to like get a shower, get something to eat, get the sound check, you know, get a nap, you know, and get on stage. And like, then you just got to break it all down and, and they get on the bus or the plane and do it all again the next day or and the next day. And it's like, it's really challenging to play 48 cities in, in 60 days or, yeah. uh, or whatever it is. And, and uh, the pace is relentless. There's a lot of traps out there like alcohol and drugs, as well as even without that stuff, the, the challenge, the physical and mental challenges of getting to the, making the show and making it happen. Now, we don't like, I don't want anybody to feel bad for me and they shouldn't. And we don't want people, we don't want the curtain peeled back to reveal what the magic trick is. People, you know, they pay 25 or 30 bucks or 35 bucks to see the show and the curtain opens and who they paid for appears on stage and hopefully gives them a show. And then the curtain closes and we go far away and they go theirs. And like, that's all they, that's all we really want them to, to see. We don't want them to know that we're fighting or one of somebody in somebody's family is dying or that I've got ten and ice in my elbow or G love has a sore throat or none of those things matter to the audience. And we don't want them to know those things. We want them to think that we parachuted in from the four seasons after <laughs> taking a fluffy nap in a fluffy bed. And, you know, we've just been blown by six girls backstage and we're going to go uh, into a helicopter and, fly off to our next gig like that's the illusion that we want we wanted to appear that way 
You know? Well, I, I got I, I have to interrupt you on that one. Then you know, you guys famously put out that documentary, the the year in the life of G Love and Special Sauce. And I mean, it seemed like there was a lot of grievances being aired in that documentary, right? You know, you guys were. I honestly haven't probably seen it uh, more than when it came out, maybe once or twice. But I do remember there was a lot of you know. Jim talking about leaving the band, uh, you guys getting in fights occasionally. I mean, it was a real honest look into what's going on behind the scenes. Well, I have to take my hat off to Garrett because Garrett could have made sure that whoever was editing all that footage, that certain things didn't make it into the, to the movie. But I appreciate that he left in all the blemishes and all the hiccups. That's the one time where I feel like it was important. It was a good idea to let people who were interested in our, us as a band to see the infighting and see the scars and the, you know, the mud slinging. And it happens in every band or every relationship. People argue or disagree. And yeah, a lot of it was really ugly, but I have to, I'm really glad that G love left all that in. I would have been disappointed if he left that out, you know? So my, my hat is off to him for they could let me, you know, letting it, let, letting the true story, and the true personalities be seen. The other thing I want to say about your last question, then we'll move on, is um, other thing that people don't realize. And I was watching some sporting event this week. Maybe it was a baseball game or whatever I was watching. And it's like, there's nobody on the road that's going to fill in for me if I don't feel good or if I sprain my ankle or if I pull out my shoulder or can't turn my head because I slept funny. You know, these fucking athletes, they make... 80 gazillion dollars a game or 80 million dollars a year. And it's like, oh, he pulled his hamstring. So we'll, we're going to take him out of the game. We're going to put in another runner. Well, guess what? When you're in uh, Bielefeld, Germany or uh, Lyon, France or Bristol, England, there is no other, no one's going to come take your place. You've got to go play. It doesn't matter if you're in a good mood, bad mood, tired, not tired, fighting with your girlfriend on the phone, five minutes before the show, someone in your, one of your parents is dying. It doesn't matter. You've got to go on stage and deliver a show to the people that bothered to get in their car, drive down, find parking, buy a ticket, come inside and stand in front of you. You owe them a show and they don't really need to know all the rest of that stuff, but there is no understudy or replacement. You can just call and be like, Oh, well, we know a drummer that lives in, luckily we're playing, we're in London and I know, another drummer that can take my place to like, it's like, doesn't matter. You got to go out there and play. Yeah. You know, one of the things I wanted to ask you about too, is it seems like um, <clears throat> one of the hot topics is when is touring going to come back. And if I'm right, you guys, if I'm, if I'm right, did you guys just play Red Rocks two weekends in a row? Yeah. They were on the schedule just by coincidence for 2020 and everything was canceled in 2020. We were supposed to open for two different acts, two different acts invited us to open and it just happened to be a week apart. So they canceled the shows in 2020 and just picked everything up and moved it to 2021 on the same dates. They just moved it a year later Weird, on the calendar. Yeah. So yeah, we, we played Red Rocks opening for Dirty Heads and then we flew out to San Diego and played a show on the beach. And then I think we all flew home for a couple of days and then we flew back, back and, and we opened for the Avid brothers about a week later at Red Rocks. Are you so well trained and you've been doing this for so long that you guys don't just use the sound check as as like your, your practice, or do you actually get together beforehand and, 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 you know, bang it out for a couple of hours and, and, and make sure you're all still in, in check? Um, do I have to reveal this information? <laughs> you don't have to do anything, man. <laughs> I'm just curious. Um, 
Well, yeah, it, it's the former, not the latter. We, you know, we've been doing it a really long time. Yeah. You know, like I, if I don't see those guys for a few months or however, you know, we don't all, we don't all even live in the same city. So yeah, yeah we fly in and we use the sound check to just go over a few things that we might have need to brush up on. Or if G love says, you know, Hey, we're going to play this one tonight. So we'll play it at sound check just to make sure we got it since we haven't played it in a while or, but you know, he's, he's funny that way. You know, he, he might rehearse something at soundcheck and not play it on the show. And he might not talk about something at soundcheck and just play it on the show anyway, just call an audible, you know, like a football quarterback. And mm-hmm. he calls a lot of audibles, but we, we can play a lot of songs. You know, we don't just play songs on our recorded albums. We play blues covers, Grateful Dead covers, old rock, old ska covers stuff that was songs that we liked that might have we might have recorded that never made it onto a g love record you know g love we 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 play all kinds of stuff uh one of the questions i wanted to ask too is 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 there an insight for this meaning on the touring side are are, have you guys actively talking about trying to book something maybe in um you know 2022 Uh, as it doesn't look like 2021 there's a lot of activity on the books but do you guys think you'll be coming back? I remember talking to Garrett about it. I was asking him a little bit about what it was like to go through that, where you're, you're releasing a record, you're halfway through a tour. And one of the things that he said, actually, which I, I found interesting, he was like, you know what? That tour was going so well. Jeff and I were getting along better than we ever had, and everything was going great. And it was so disappointing that the band was on fire and it just got the rug pulled out. So do you guys, you know, is there a time you think you can get back to active touring? Um, well, I, I guess this is my time to announce that I've, I've retired. I've unofficially retired from G love and special sauce. I'm only going to be, I had a conversation with, with Garrett a few months ago and, uh, he invited me to play a couple of shows cause that's all we have. He's doing, uh, you know, he's doing other stuff with other musicians out of the ashes of COVID just out of, he had to, he had to put sure. together, uh, the cobble together gigs and he wasn't going to be able to fly me and Jimmy around like he normally would before COVID. So he, he was hiring either playing with Chuck Treese, our drummer friend from Philly, or he put a band together that he called the juice and a bunch of Boston musicians. And I don't even know who they are because I've never met them, but like he's got a couple of bands that he can play with besides special sauce. So the occasional special sauce things are popping up here and there. You know, if he invites me to play, I will probably play them, but I'm not going to be, I've decided, in, you know, once COVID sort of knocked me off the, the, off the rail that I was, you know, I think I, it just gave me some perspective at the age that I'm at, that I think I'm not going to be doing that. I'll be in Nashville picking up sessions and teaching a few students virtually, and that's just what I decided that I, that I'm not going to get back on a bus with those guys and do that thing i would consider if you know if some offer comes along here i live in nashville there's a lot of things happening here if something i like or that opportunity comes along i would consider it but i'm not planning on getting back on a bus and doing that so you're done with the touring life no if i get the right offer and it's something i'm interested in entertaining i will if you know bob dylan or bob seeger or bob somebody calls me and it's high profile or something like that. I would probably consider it. Uh, but if it's not that I'm not, I'm not, I'm not riding around anymore doing the thing that I did previously. So. 
Yeah, this is this is interesting news. Very interesting news. Well, this is the first time I've actually I, mean, I haven't announced formally that I've retired. And like I said, it's unofficial. So if Garrett calls me to like I have something with him in November, and I think there might be a couple of dates in Japan in it, next April of twenty two. If if we're allowed to go over, and he wants me, he wants special sauce to come over, I would probably do that. But I'm only going to be doing select things now so yeah this is but i haven't really done any other interviews i'm officially announcing that i'm unofficially retired i really hope that you know i look again i i just i've, I've been such a huge fan of everything you guys have done and it's sad to see that all uh, you know all this stuff might go away at some point because i'm so proud of what you guys have well, done and you know you guys are you're my go-to band you. it's just it's just been it's been I, great we're grateful i want to say thank you for the compliment and we you know we really are if i could individually thank every single fan for coming every single night, I would, especially in the last bunch of years when it was tough for us to keep things going sometimes business-wise. Like, I really do appreciate every person that bought a ticket, got in their car, came down, parked their car, even after working all day, got a babysitter, you know, came out with the missus or their, hus- their husband and watched us play and, you know, supported the band. I really am genuinely grateful to every fan. And I want you to know, or anybody listening to know that, no matter what mood I was in or what physical or mental shape I was in, I always did my best to go out there. And I always felt like not only did I owe it to the audience to put on the best possible show that I could possibly do, but I also owed it to Jimmy and Garrett on stage. And I owed it to myself to go out there and play with dignity and pride and give people a show for their hard-earned money and never phone it in or just go through the motion that would be very unfair to people that are buying tickets that would be like going to a restaurant and the food coming and it's you know rotten spoiled or or whatever like it's not it's not cool to do that it's not cool to sell tickets to a show and then go out like if we have a bad night because the band just has an off night that's one thing but like if you're going out there and and sucking because you're not into it or you're not trying that's not fair to the people that bought a ticket and i feel like personally and i i can't speak for garrett and jimmy but i think i could when i say we always went out there and put all our differences aside or whatever and went out there and tried to make make it make it into a, a genuine happening you know what i mean yeah for sure no i mean i, I look i've seen you all over the freaking world play right I've got you guys in hawaii i mean I, I, every venue in seattle that you played I, I was always at i mean some of the better shows that i that i love i love seeing you guys on a big stage too. Like I saw you open for Dave Matthews uh, at the gorge once. And I was just like, so proud. Like, look at these guys, you know, they're they're doing it. Uh, So, you know, um, just change your mind, get the band back together. I feel like, you know, I, I, it's funny. I don't really do social media much, but since I know so much about the band, I'm the guy that anytime I can, I can jump online. I'm always like, just get back into the fucking studio and here's the songs you play live that you've never recorded or at least never released. Maybe you recorded them and you haven't like, there's so many songs from the beginning, like lovesick, uh, you know, even like later songs like flow or never home really never got a, a proper recording. There's so many good songs that you toured live that never got recorded. And I'm like, can't G love and special sauce just go back in for one record and do these. You know, I mean, there's so many songs you guys never recorded, and I never really understood why. Yeah, uh, there is a recording of Never Home on a bootleg, and there is a, we did record uh, the, not the, this, Garrett had Lovesick 1 and Lovesick 2. Lovesick, the, the Lovesick that I liked was this sort of 
really broody, dark, funky number. Uh, the other one was more of like a Bob Dylan kind of subterranean homesick blues style song. But the, the lovesick that I remember was this like really dark, lo-fi, swirly, cool song called Love Sick. I can kind of hear it in my head. And um, yeah, you know, right when you were asking me a few minutes ago, are we going to go back on tour? I was literally thinking while you're asking me that, do I, do I announce my unofficial retirement to Mike right here right now? Or do I just act like, oh, I don't know when we're going to go back on tour, maybe sometime soon. But I thought that would be disingenuous. But yeah, I appreciate it. Well, let me ask this. If you had the opportunity to go back and record with the band, would you do it? Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not complete. I didn't say I'm never going to play with Garrett or Jim again. It's just that COVID changed everything for everybody, as you know, and Garrett moved on to his other projects. I'm I'm here in Nashville, Jim's in Portland, Oregon. And, you know, like Garrett's, you know, he recorded the juice, you know, Jim and I don't play on that record. And he just recorded a new record that he's working on that I, I don't feel you know, it's not my place to talk about it, but uh, we don't play on that one either. So mm-hmm. that's a state, you know, that's, you know, he's entitled to play. We're all, each of us is entitled to play music with whoever we want. There's no, what do you mean you're playing with somebody else? Like, it's not like that. You know, I work with, I, you know, I work with our Dan Auerbach here, which is awesome. And Garrett does what he wants and Jim does what he wants. And, you know, if there's a chance for us to play a couple of gigs, like we're playing this week, I'm flying out to play with them three times next week with Jimmy and Garrett out West. Like, as I said, if if, if they invite me to play a couple of fly here, fly there type dates, I'll consider every offer, but I'm not, I'm not going to be touring. I'm not, I'm not touring. I'm just flying out to play a couple of shows. Yeah. I got you. I understand what you're saying. I I do. I I just, I just want to convince you differently. (laughs) You know, from, uh, from someone again, that's followed you guys for so long. And one of the things that I was sort of thinking about is like all the records that you made together. And even though you, you know, you, yeah, that easy, that's a lot of different players on that. Then you kind of went through that cycle of making records together. And then Garrett goes off and does, his own G love records, which really were still you guys. I mean, you know, you played on lemonade, even though it's G loves lemonade, that's really a G love and special sauce record. But I guess the point is it seemed like when, you know, Jim was left the band, whatever that was about. And then he comes back. You guys had this stellar run of me, like, you know, sugar and love saves a day are just phenomenal records. I mean, I really thought that those were, when you listen to, those albums that is like the trio at its finest i mean I, I one of the things i really you know just another compliment is when those records came out when you were playing them sort of front to back uh and then you play the hits afterwards that was fucking awesome right i mean i just thought that it showed who the band really was right you know the, that you could play that music as a trio uh and the live recordings of songs like you know peanut butter lips like that song is a great live sound and you know your drums are pounding on that and the guitar is great on it and you know it was just i sort of felt like you guys were going back up in in all the right directions and kind of putting that stamp that you guys are g11 special sauce so i wish covid wouldn't have derailed and i don't know what these other projects garrett's Garrett's up to um but i'm still going to hold out that one day the three of you get back in a recording studio at the least if you don't tour i respect that but please go back in and you know make those songs that you've been playing for years that I feel like you guys could jump into the studio and record nine to 15 tracks in a week because you've been playing them forever. Yeah. I, you know, like I said, I, I'm never saying never to anything. I'll entertain any and all offer, but you know, I'm, I'm mostly at home these days and I'm, I'm happy at home. 
And, um, you know, I'm just not going to run around like that and, and ride around on a bus and do, you know, put up with whatever you have to put up with. You could do that. I already did that. I did a lot of it and I'm not doing that. So, right. You feel like you have a better relationship with Dan Aberbach uh, than you do with Garrett and Jim? Um, Dan, or is it just different? He's, busy. He's, he's just busy. You know, he's, he's, he's got a really cool thing going on. He built a, you know, a great studio and he produces a lot of different stuff. And he's got a lot of different musicians that he uses. He doesn't just use me exclusively. He uses a lot of different guys in town. There's a lot of great musicians in Nashville. And uh, it's always great when he calls. And I never know who's going to be there or what I'm playing on until I get there. I just show up. And those sessions are like very different than the set. Like then I would, they're just different than, you know, the, everything is, uh, all the musicians are, you know, really great. And all the charts, is, I have to read charts. It's not that difficult, but you still have to be able to do it. It has, you have to be able to go in there and interpret what he, the song and come up with a part and follow the arrangement and then cut the song in a timely manner or else you're not going to get those calls. It's different than, it's much different than recording with Garrett and Jim, you know, as like, that's just like being in a band, being, being over at Hourbacks is like, you know, you're getting a call because he's calling, he, he's calling you because he has the confidence that you're going to come in and do a certain thing and have that, you know, intuition. He trusts your intuition that you're going to play the right thing on whatever, album or song he's having you come down and play on and you know those sessions are some of the most exciting things i've done in my career to be able to go over there and get a call from dan and because he can call anybody to play so if he's calling if he's calling me to come down like that means he wants me for a particular reason you know i know what the reasons are but still great that he thinks of me in a certain way like oh you know call jeffrey he'd be good for this you know, so that's 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 pretty pretty nice to get those calls. So I haven't heard from him lately, and I think the Black Keys are doing a couple of shows coming up, so he might be busy with that. But I hope he calls again soon. Um, I would I would never say no to want to those sessions because you can walk in, anybody could be there from like, you know, it could be Chrissy Hine from the Pretenders, it could be you know CeeLo Green, it could be you don't know who's gonna, be, or, right. or it could just be it could be like no one you ever heard of. You know, or it could be just some of dance songs. You don't know, you know? Yeah. So if, if I'm right, I was, I was looking at that online. I want to say in the last couple of years, not only did you play on his solo record, but there was a blues artist by the name of Robert Finley that you came in and you did all the drums on that. I played on both Finley records. The second one just came out this past May. The first Finley record that I did with Dan, I, I played on eight out of 10 songs on that record on the second Finley record that just came out. I'm on three out of 10. The other drummer, the other guy that so I played on eight out of ten in the first record. The guy that played on the other two is a legendary session drummer named Gene Chrisman, G-E-N-E Chrisman. You can look him up, he's a legend. And then Dan used Gene on most of the second Finley record that just came out. I, I ended up on three, three of those songs. One of the things that I, I was wondering too is do you feel like in G Love and Special Sauce, do you feel like you? I know there's some songs that you wrote, but I don't really understand how the the credits get get put together. Like I know for a fact you wrote Night of the Living Dead, right? That's your yeah. song. Yep. And yeah. uh, do you feel like that in in the the band that your contribution to writing songs there was a stamp on it, or do you think that there was a time that Garrett just started writing his own? Here, here's actually the point that I wanted to make from earlier, where you're talking about all these different styles and the reason why G Love is is, is you, you, no one could copy him because it, it, it's kind of true when you you talk about 
No one could do a Beastie Boys cover because that would be silly. Uh, They might have a couple of songs that people could bang out like Sabotage and maybe sound a little bit like the Beastie Boys, but no one will ever be the Beastie Boys again. And with G-11 Special Sauce, I'll say the same thing. There's no way that a band ever would have come up with songs like Eyes Have Miles, uh, which is just a great groove. Uh, Cold Beverage is, you know, it's a classic. But there's other songs along the way. Um, that I can think of in, in the Lemonade recording, the Hustle recording, all these songs that are just straight up, that's the sound of G-11 Special Sauce. And so I guess my point is, there is a, a point when he started writing songs like um, I'll Be Just Fine that are, they're not that G-11 Special Sauce sound. I think he figured out that I need to start writing something that's a little bit less partying and a lot more like a songwriter. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think it was there a point in the career where he started actually instead of doing his rhyming and rapping, uh, he started putting out that style of music and was the collective core being removed from G-11 Special Sauce on the writing side. Early on, he already had he had a really serious singer songwriter side when he was 19 or 20. He, He wrote some of the best songs that we never recorded that I ever heard him play when he was 20, 19, 20, 21. He had all these like very Dylan-esque kind of songs, lots and lots of verses and, you know, deep, deep, deep lyrics and messages. And yeah. And then the party thing was sort of the bread and butter. And there's been some mutual collaborations between the three of us, or sometimes just him and Jim, or just sometimes me and G love, you know, on the writing. He's a really, you know, he's a prolific songwriter. It's never come easy for us as a band. And, you know, we haven't all lived in the same city for the better part. From like the first few years of the band, we all lived in Boston. But after that, everybody scattered to yeah. different places and then scattered again. And then Jim was out of the band and back in and scattered again. So it makes it much harder to collaborate when you don't even live in the same town. You know, like sure. I got friends in other bands. I got friends in New Orleans that they all live in New Orleans. And I got friends with the Dandy Warhols and they all live in Portland, Oregon. You know, and like they have like this studio and a clubhouse and a space and a place to try things and and you know we don't have that we just didn't end up in the same city we really are very three different guys from three different we're three completely different personalities from three different backgrounds and three different everything everything's different about all three of us so like i said somehow there's you know jim's said it best in the documentary the movie you're talking about the year and the night and i'll leave you with this quote and then i'm going to go in the documentary, Jim says something like this, you know, whatever the question, somebody asked him the question and he answered it to say, when we, when the three of us get into a room, the more that we talk, the further away we get from what it is we're trying to do. But the less we talk and we actually play, the closer we get to what we're trying to do. So the strongest communication between me and Garrett and Jim, although we all love each other, even with all of our faults and and shortcomings the conversation happens on stage and between our between us on our instruments that's where the conversation happens between the three of us when the conversation happens in words between the three of us it's never as productive never as fulfilling never as enjoyable never as agreeable never in you know it's never as good as if we just play that's where the conversation happens through our instruments and generally on stage in front of an audience. And that's just the way it is. Yeah. Jeffrey, the house man Clemens. 
Yeah. I just want to say <laughs> thank you so much for your time. Uh, I, I, I look forward to see what you do in the future. And, uh, you know, thank hopefully you, I'll see you on the I'll stage sometime. I'm around. Yeah, I'm you're around. around. <laughs> never, say, never say never. Thank you for being a fan and for having me on the show today. And uh, I'm sure I'll meet you in person, but it was nice to meet you. And I hope this interview was uh, informative and enjoyable for you. It was for me. And there you go. I want to thank Mr. Jeffrey Clemens for coming on the podcast, and I hope you enjoyed listening. If you have any questions or comments, drop us a line at info at travelingentertainer.com, yes, with two L's. And if you like what you heard, you can subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn Plus Alexa, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and pretty much everywhere podcasts are hosted. Or you can stream it off the website at www.travelingentertainer.com. In the meantime, get out there and see the world, and while you are seeing it, make sure to support live music. Or in this case, make a point to see Jeff play live with the special sauce while you can. Taking Us Out is a live version of the song Night of the Living Dead, which Jeff wrote, and in this version, he is not only playing the drums, but pulling double duty as the singer as well. Thanks for listening, take care everyone, and safe travels. She said